0: Well, we live in a world of signs, whether it's a billboard, a business sign, a street sign, a a church sign. Signs are all around us. They're meant to draw and direct our attention. That's what a sign is meant to do. Now, some of my favorite signs in this area are, are over at the McMiniman's Cornelius Pass Roadhouse, or the Embry Hall, if you've been there. Near the front end of their property, there's a signpost with about a dozen signs on it, all pointing different directions. And they have the names of other McMiniman's locations, as well as the mileage to get there. It's a really neat sign. I would encourage you to check it out next time you're there, if you've missed it. But here's here's the thing about signs. The sign isn't the point.
1: It's a means to an end.
0: For instance, when you're driving down Highway 26, and you see a, a sign that says Hillsboro, next exit, is the sign Hillsboro? No. It's not Hillsboro itself. It's a sign that points to the city. Another example is when you reach the sign outside of this building that says First Baptist Church, does that mean that you've actually arrived at the church? No. Actually, no. Because the sign points to where the church meets, which is actually where the people meet
1: the people are the church.
0: Now, the sign isn't the point. It is a means that points to the true end, and it points to a deeper reality of that person, place, or thing that it is pointing to. And this morning, we are going to step in and further into the story of Jesus and the gospel according to John, and we are going to behold one of the greatest signs, one of the greatest miracles in all of history. We're going to do that this morning. And we're going to see that this sign points to the deeper and true reality of the authority and of the glory and the fullness of Jesus this morning. So please turn with me in your Bible to the gospel according to John, to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, you can grab one in a pew near you. You can find John on page 886. And we're going to be living in John chapter 2 this morning. And just, just a note, if you do not own a Bible... You can take that Bible from the pew today. We'd love for you to take that if you do not own a Bible. Well, you're going to be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage this morning, John chapter 2. Now, you might be asking yourself, whoa, 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 a whole chapter, 25 verses? That's a lot to get through this morning. And yeah, and it it will be. But one of my goals this morning is to, to show that all of this chapter is meant to be read together. As one cohesive whole. So let's jump right in. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is God's word to and for the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I have nothing new or transformative to say today, but you do in and through your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit now to turn the lights on in our uh, dim minds and hearts so that we might behold the glory of Jesus. We ask that this would not just be another Sunday, another routine, another passage, another song sung, another prayer prayed, but we ask that we would be transformed personally and collectively into the image of Jesus through your word this morning. Lord, may the meditations of my mouth be pleasing to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, in John chapter 1, we discovered together that all of the Old Testament has been driving, was driving toward a culmination, a, a fulfillment point. In Jesus, the one who is, as we've seen, the word of God made flesh, the life and light of all men, the lamb of God, the spirit baptizer, the initiator of salvation and discipleship, the stairway to heaven, as we saw, the fulfillment of Genesis 28, the one in whom God's covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has been fulfilled. And at the close of chapter 1, we read that Jesus is the Son of Man, that ultimate fulfillment of God's promises have come to God's people through him. This is what we've beheld in chapter 1. And at this point in the series, it would be helpful to remember the purpose of the book of John, because we've covered a lot of ground these last few weeks. So what's the purpose of the gospel according to John? Well, once again, it's captured in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. You don't have to turn there, but let me just read those verses to you once again. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have Life in his name. This book was written by John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we might behold Jesus and come to belief in Jesus. Beholding and believing. And this morning we get the joy of beholding Jesus afresh in in all of his beauty through the first of seven signs or miracles recorded in the gospel according to John. And those seven signs are going to be paired with seven I am statements. You see what's going on there. Seven seems to be an important number. In the scriptures, the number seven is significant because it represents fullness, satisfaction. That can only come in and through Jesus. And like the signs I mentioned earlier, this sign, this miracle, points beyond itself to a deeper fulfillment in Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that sign in the first half of chapter two is intimately connected with, with that event that happens in the temple. Those two are to be seen as kind of one, one part, one, one story all together.
1: And here's the big idea of this whole chapter.
0: Here it is. The old is gone, and the new has come in Jesus. So believe in him. The old is gone, and the new
1: has come in Jesus. So believe in him. If there's one thing to write down today, that's it. The question is what's old? What's old and gone?
0: And what's new? Well, in this passage, what we're going to find, and what we have already found just in reading it, that Jesus has brought in his person and work new wine in verses 1 through 12, and then new worship in verses 13 to 25. New wine, new worship. So with that, point one, new wine. Our passage begins in verses 1 through 2 with Jesus his mom, his disciples, and they're at a wedding feast in a place called Cana in Galilee. And the reality that Jesus begins his earthly ministry at a wedding is significant. Weddings are where one man and one woman enter the covenant of marriage together, a covenant that displays the relationship between Jesus and his bride, his people, the church. It's a place where intimate love is spoken of, rehearsed, and displayed. And it just makes sense that Jesus would begin his public ministry and mission at a wedding celebration. And we read there in verse 1 that it's the third day, and it's helpful to note that the book of John captures about 21 days of Jesus' earthly ministry. So, John is giving us a marker here in the timeline. It's the third day. And again, Jesus and his entourage are at a wedding. The first century and first century weddings would typically last about a week. Uh, It was a a week-long party, a celebration, most typically paid for by the groom and his family. And there was one thing that just could not happen and first century
1: weddings in Palestine. One thing,
0: you don't run out of wine. (laughs) This was a massive problem. And so Jesus' mom comes to him. Like those who saw Jesus and and came to Jesus and followed Jesus back in chapter one. Here, Jesus' mom is now coming to him. And, and what does she say? They've got no wine, Jesus. <laughs> Mary comes to Jesus with this problem because she knows who he is and that he alone could bring a solution. As the Savior and the shepherd of his people, he could resolve this problem like that. And Jesus responds, verse 4, woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, just a handful of points here on this this interaction. First, the title, woman, is not Jesus disrespecting his mama. In that time, woman was an honorable title, much like ma'am or madam. Jesus actually uses the same title for his mom when he's on the cross. In John chapter 19, he uses it in the same moment he is handing her earthly care off to one of the disciples. So this is not a title of dishonor or disrespect, but Jesus is in this moment doing something theologically, biblically significant. He is distancing himself. He is separating himself from doing the will of his mom and the will of his father. He is making it abundantly clear that he's not at his mom's beck and call, but at the
1: father's beck and call.
0: Second, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. So what does he mean by this? Well, that hour that he is referring to is kind of a catch-all phrase that captures his crucifixion and resurrection. That term, the hour, is going to come up several other times throughout this gospel account. And that hour is referring, again, to his death and resurrection where he would fully and publicly display his glory and his majesty and his victory for all to see over sin and death. And Jesus tells his mom, hey, the hour has not yet come because he does not want to prematurely draw too much attention to himself. Third, and this is just a a sub-point of sub-points, I I wonder how this conversation connects with you this morning, how, how it strikes you. If you're a mom in
1: this room, or you're a son to a mom in this room, or if you're a daughter to a mom in this room, for that matter, in principle. How does this conversation strike you? What does your communication look like with, with
0: your child, with, with your parent? What do your conversations look like? Can you, can you go to one another, come to one another with with problems, and seek, seeking solutions? Do you have that sort of relationship? Or, or do you need to pursue reconciliation and restored relationship because you've, you've either miscommunicated or hurt one another at some point in your, in your interactions? As a son to a mom that has now passed into glory, there are days where I would love nothing more than to go to my mom. So this passage hits me a little differently. It has hit me a little differently reading it and studying it this time around. Again, this is a minor point next to the major, but I do believe this conversation in a very small and rather intimate way does impact the way that we communicate with honor, with clarity, with respect, not just in the family, but also in the, in the corporate family,
1: in, in the local church, here at HFBC.
0: Well, verse 5, how does, how does Mary respond to Jesus? Well, she recognizes that it's not yet his hour. She doesn't make a big deal. And she simply says to the servants, just do whatever he tells you. And in verses 6 through 7, the servants bring six stone water jars. And these jars were used for the Jewish rites. Now, that that language of rites is not something we typically use. So a rite is a a ceremony or a ritual. These jars were used for the rites, the, the rituals of purification, to get right with God. And these huge jars contain water, like large amounts of water, And Jesus says, Fill those jars to the brim. And the servants do it. And then Jesus takes some to the master of the feast, the wedding planner, if you will. And in verse 9, it says that the water had become wine, and the wedding planner of the feast did not know where it came from. He didn't understand what's going on. But he calls the groom, he's like, You gotta check this out. He calls the groom to come and, and take a sip. And before we look at the response of the groom, I want to notice one thing. What's what's said right in the middle of verse 9. Did you notice that? Sometimes again we read the Bible too quickly to notice these things. But we read that the servants knew that the miracle happened. They knew first. How amazing is that? What's incredible is that it's the servants that see the miracle of Jesus first, not the elites, not the wedding planner, not the groom, not the guests of honor, not the most powerful that were there at the, at the wedding feast. No, it was the lowly. It was the servants. This is a small insight into the upside down kingdom where the first is last and the last is first. And this shouldn't be lost on us, this should humble us. Well, verse 10, the groom tastes the wine and says, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept, notice this, the good wine, the best wine, until now. So what's going on here? What's up with this? Well, This sign, this miracle, points to a much greater and deeper truth and fulfillment in what Jesus is doing. Here's what the sign reveals. We need to look back once again in our Bibles to to understand what's going on here. First, we must notice the details and the progression of this sign. There was no wine, then there's purification jars full of water, and then there's new wine made by Jesus, and even that that progression. And we should ask ourselves, why in the world would John make it a point to tell us all these details? What do they mean? More specifically, why would he tell us that the water once used for Jewish purification rites is now being used to make the finest wine by Jesus? Why? Well, here's what's being revealed here. The old Jewish rites, right, the ceremonies, the rituals that were given to God's people in the old covenant, under the old law, in the old testament, the need for purification and cleansing through rituals for sin, for areas that they have rebelled against God, the need for purification for those things through rituals has passed away and the new has come in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus the Messiah has come. He has brought something new, something better, something eternal through him and through his new covenant. That's what's going on here. Yes, the old covenant, the old law, the old rituals kind of captured there in the, in the six purification jars served a purpose, yes. So no, we're not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, as they say. We're not unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament. That's not what I'm arguing here. But it served a purpose that was now over. They once purified, but now they don't. They always pointed toward a day. fulfillment when they would no longer be needed and this sign proclaims that that day has come the day had come the sign proclaims that the old failing institutions the spiritually bankrupt religious rituals of God's people had passed away and the new has come and now Jesus plus nothing is all we need to be purified for our sin Jesus is all that we need Jesus plus nothing equals salvation and if you are here today, this is good news for us. This is good news for you. No matter the shameful or heinous things that you have done, they can be washed away forever. Not by religious rituals or, or, or cleansing yourself, purifying yourself. Just trying to get right. But by Jesus alone. In him is eternal purification and salvation. For he has brought purification through the shedding of his blood on the cross. And we're going to look at that event, that historical true event, in just a handful of months. And after that, death on the cross, he raised again three days later in victory over sin and death. So we could look to him in faith today. We can repent of our sins and believe in him because his work alone saves If you have questions about any of this, I'll be standing in the back after the service, or you can find one of the other pastors here, or you can find someone in the pew near you. We would love to talk with you more about Jesus' work on your behalf. But if you're a Christian here today, let me encourage you, this passage encourages us to keep looking to Jesus in repentance and faith. That ongoing repentance and belief. It's so easy to kind of fall into a ritualistic kind of works-based understanding of our salvation. We can retreat to the old covenant. We've been given a new covenant. We've been given Jesus. All we need is him. In him, the work is done. So keep looking to him in belief. Well, there's even more, there's a second fulfillment that the sign reveals in Jesus. And here it is. The prophets in the Old Testament prophesied of a day when God's people would be brought out of exile, spiritually and physically, out of captivity, and would be spiritually restored, and that God's kingdom would come. And the sign that that day and age of restoration had come would be that there would be abundant Wine. That's not a coincidence. There is no such thing as coincidence in God's word and world. This is prophesied in Jeremiah 31, Hosea 14, and Amos chapter nine. We don't have time to read all of those chapters this morning. I wish we could. Go and write those down. Maybe study them or look at them later this week. Through this sign, Jesus is saying, I am here. Abundant wine has come in and through me. But it's also come in fullness through Jesus. In fullness. Each purification right jar held 20 to 30 gallons, which means that Jesus made about 120 gallons of wine for this wedding feast. More than enough. So much more than enough. And that's the point. In him has come life abundant wine new wine abundant and he did this to show us that in and through him the new has come and john is teaching us how to read our bibles here how to read backwards how to read all of scripture in light of jesus as our our kind of lens do you read the bible like john does i pray that you would well, we find out there in verse 11 and 12 that, that third, this, this sign ultimately displayed the glory of Jesus, the fullness of Jesus. And what was the result? His disciples believed in him. His followers came to a deeper faith in him. See, when Christians see the wonderful signs of Jesus on full display, we believe in him, not the sign itself, Or what the sign produces. But we come to deeper belief in the person behind the sign. Or to the the person who the sign pointed to. And that's Jesus. Church, Jesus is the object of true belief. Jesus alone. He is the substance of true belief. He is worthy of our full and complete faith. Well, this section ends with Jesus going down to Capernaum with his mother and his disciples, his brothers, and they stayed there a few days. And after this, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. And again, this is intentional. This is not a coincidence. There's no such thing as coincidence in God's word and world. This is not a coincidence. It's in Jerusalem at the time of Passover that he, he goes, and we see a second sign that points to Jesus. This is not a, a new sign, but a, a sign that's intimately linked, almost the, the, the heads and tails, right? So we just saw the, the one sign and the other miracles connected to it. We're going to see these two work together. And that leads to point two, new worship. Look with me again at verses 13 through 25. zeal for your house will consume me so the jews said to him what sign do you show us for doing these things jesus answered them destroy this temple and in three days i will rise it up the jews then said it takes has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days but he was speaking about the temple of his body When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, what he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man." We read there in verse 13 that Passover is at hand. Now Passover was a Jewish festival where all of the Jews came to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, to be with one another, to be in the presence of God in a a unique and special way together, to offer sacrifices together, to remember and to celebrate the Passover. All of those, those wonderful events that we read of in Exodus way back in our Bibles, back in Exodus. And Jesus goes up to worship in the temple with his family and with his disciples. But when Jesus gets to the temple, what does he see? A farm. It's filled with oxen and sheep and pigeons and doves and and folks are selling them to the Jews so that they could sacrifice them at Passover in the temple. These folks were opportunists making money on the worship of God's people. These folks We're doing this in order to make the temple a marketplace. And Jesus is righteously enraged. And so he makes a whip. Can you imagine the scene for a minute? Jesus walks in and sees what's going on. He begins to collect cords. He sits down. He makes this whip. And then he proceeds to drive all of them out. He drives animals and people out of the temple. He flips the tables. Money is scattered. People scattered. Animals scattered. He tells them, verse 16, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade, a house of business. See, the temple had become a marketplace. It's outer courts used for business and not for worship. And this was blocking Jews and Gentiles from worshiping God. And so Jesus is righteously and rightly enraged over this because he was zealous for God to be rightly approached and worshipped by Jews and Gentiles in both the inner courts and the outer courts. Because at the end of the day, the temple, God's house, was to be a place that the nations would, would flow to. It says in Isaiah chapter 2 and chapter 56 that the temple was to be a place for the nations to come and pray. But it was not. It had become a place of commerce and not worship. And in verse 17, we see that the disciples recognize the zeal and righteous actions of Jesus in the temple. And they they say, oh, this is, they, they immediately pick up, this is a fulfillment of Psalm 69.9, 69.9, that's explicitly quoted right there. So what's going on here again? Is this, is this an overreaction? It seems a little harsh for a Jesus that we generally see with a lamb in his hand, gentle and lowly. This seems a little harsh. What's going on here? What, why this kind of righteous zeal? Well, the temple, again, was to be God's house for worship. The place of right worship of him and not a place of enterprise and financial gain. But the temple religion and rituals of the Jewish leaders that was allowed by the Jewish leaders and carried on in the temple had become corrupt and bankrupt. And there are some warnings for us here.
1: First, when the When the people of God gather, God cares how we worship Him? How often do we think lightly
0: about our worship? And we come to to God on our own terms instead of reading and listening to His? Further, how often do we think of the church like a like a business? where we see the church's budget and and resources and people and priorities as something to be monetized or built upon, like a corporate enterprise. The church is not a house of trade. It's not an enterprise. Further, how often do we treat the church like an exclusive club that that in the end kind of blocks people from coming to worship God, blocks people from joining the church for worship, We sometimes do this unconsciously and consciously.
1: If Jesus came into this place, what would he see and what would he do?
0: These questions are worth asking. May we steward God's resources, one another, and God's priorities driven by his word, even this building, in a way that is pleasing to God
1: and is marked by the right worship of God.
0: Let's do this by aligning our priorities with God's priorities in his word. Let's let's do this by, by having God's word and gospel drive all that we do and nothing else. Well, this passage goes on. In verse 18, not with the Jews and religious leaders repenting, but demanding an explanation. <laughs> they come to Jesus and say, all right, uh, what sign do you got for us uh, for these things? Like, what, what are you doing? And Jesus says in a typical, kind of seemingly off-the-wall way, he says, well, I'll destroy this temple, and three days I'm going to rise it again. I'm going to raise it again. And the Jews and religious leaders respond, uh, what? <laughs> it's taken us, oh, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? What? What's up with that? And John clarifies this for us. It says in verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Okay? So again, what's the, what's the point? What's the point? Well, the old was passing away and the new had come in Jesus and with him and in him and through him a new and better place of worship had come in him here Jesus is making it abundantly clear that he has come that he is the point here Jesus is making the point that hey the temple was a temporary structure that just pointed toward the true tabernacle and that's me this is John's point back in John 1, verse 14, that God once dwelt with his people through structures, through, through temples, but he now dwells with his people through the Son. And it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus, particularly the death of Jesus as the Passover sacrifice once and for all, and through the resurrection, something new and better has come. See, with Jesus, the old institutions, the old rituals, the old covenant worship passed away, and new covenant worship in him came. So we don't need buildings, although buildings are a gift. We don't need rituals or purification jars. We just need Jesus and his word and the spirit. Jesus
1: changes everything.
0: Everything. And he has oriented all of Scripture and all of worship around himself. And here's the connection to that preceding miracle. The old way of purification again is done. Jesus has come. Here the old temple is done and would be fully done in AD 70 when it was destroyed. And the new has come in Jesus. And so to truly worship him, we must repent and believe and be purified in his blood. And if you have, then catch this, you are a living stone, as Peter says in First Peter chapter 2, by radical grace and the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus, you have been made a part of him as a spiritual temple in and through the resurrected Jesus, and you have been given a new song to sing of salvation, of his grace. This is a global reality, Yes? but it's actually expressed in local churches, in local bodies of repenting and believing and baptized and Lord Supper eating members who gather as the household of Jesus week after week for worship
1: in word and spirit. Not
0: to practice old and cold and dead worship rituals, but to come to God before the throne of God through Jesus and Jesus alone. Well, in verse 22, we see that the disciples later come to recognize all of this when Jesus is raised from the dead. The text says that the disciples remembered this reality of Jesus being the new temple, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. They came to see what we ought to see, that where Jesus speaks, the Bible speaks. Where the Bible speaks, Jesus speaks. Those two are connected. And so to take all of this into account and bring it to the pavement of our life together as a church, here's what this means for us today. As the people of God, our worship gatherings must be centered on Jesus and his words. It's just, it's that simple. It's got to be centered on Jesus and his word, not on tradition or ritual. Our worship gatherings must not glorify ourselves, but Jesus Our worship must be relentlessly grounded in the gospel of Jesus for true belief and light and life has come through him and all other ground is shifting sand. Our worship from our songs to our prayers to our our messages must exalt Jesus who is the fullness of God embodied. The one who has brought new wine and new worship through his death and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, it takes the whole church to worship this way it takes the whole church to worship this way. And in a world of competing objects of worship, and in a time where we can be so easily tossed to and fro by winds of unsound doctrine, false worship and empty idols, our worship, trust and belief must be anchored in Jesus and Jesus alone. And we must together repent when we go astray. Together. Repent when we go we go astray. And to look to the Spirit for help upon help and grace upon grace as we wait for the return of Jesus. For if we don't, on the last day, we will not receive the abundant new wine of Jesus personally and collectively, eternally, through belief in Him and the gospel. But
1: we're going to receive judgment. Well,
0: in verses 23 through 25, we read that, Many come to believe in Jesus because of the signs. In contrast to the belief of the disciples who are, who are believing in Jesus, who have a relationship with Jesus, these folks are there for the show. They're, for, they're there for the show and not a savior. They're there for a celebrity,
1: not a sin-bearing rescuer.
0: And here is yet another warning for the modern church. We could so often be caught up with attractional ministry, a ministry and and a worship that's, that's what's been called seeker sensitive and ask these sorts of questions. Well, how can we attract more people and reach outsiders? What songs, events, lights, programs will entertain? What can we offer that will grow our numbers? What tool or method will sufficiently work to accomplish this? Some of those questions have been asked with with good intentions, but are often answered unintentionally and intentionally wrong. So what should we be asking? Well, here, here are just a few questions. What does God's word say about how God desires to be worshiped? What does God's word say about how he is to be worshiped? What are God's priorities
1: for the church in his word? How does Jesus in his word define faithful, healthy ministry?
0: What does spiritual growth and maturity look like in the life of believers personally and collectively as the household of God in Christ? Those are the questions that we should be asking ourselves. And then we should continue to open God's word and pray and seek wisdom and look to Jesus. See, what the church wins people with is what they must keep them with. And at the end of the day, if that's entertainment or a program or a leadership personality, it's gonna fail. Those will prove insufficient because they're temporary. And what's popular today is likely not going to be popular tomorrow. But God's word and gospel never returns void, brothers and sisters. It never returns void. God's word doesn't change in a changing world. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and every tomorrow after that. Praise God. God's word and the gospel of Jesus alone are sufficient for right worship because they save and shape the church. They save and shape the church. They're the foundation of sound ministry. They sustain our life together. And the good news, the good news of this passage here in these last few verses is that Jesus entrusts himself to Christians who entrust themselves to him and his word. Jesus entrusts himself to churches that entrust themselves to him and his sufficient word. That is good news for churches like HFBC.
1: That's good news for us. Well, we should close.
0: As we have seen today, the old is gone. A new wine And new worship has come in Jesus as the one who purifies and cleanses his people. And the signs of John 2 point, as we've seen, to the glory of Jesus and the fulfillment of Jesus. But in him, they also point forward. Because though the power of sin has been broken, the power of death has been broken, its presence still remains, doesn't it? Jesus has not returned.
1: We still live in the Father's world that's also fallen. We live in what's called the
0: already and the not yet. We live between two days, the day of, of Jesus' coming, his resurrection and his ascension,
1: and the day of his return.
0: brothers and sisters, on the day that Jesus returns. As John writes in another book, the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ, all who are in him, who Jesus has entrusted himself to, and all who have entrusted themselves to him will eternally gather at the ultimate marriage feast of the Lamb. The ultimate marriage feast. The the feast between Christ and his body, his church. And on that day, we will taste and see new wine in the city of God eternally. And on that day, as John writes in Revelation 21, 22, there will be no temple in the city because Jesus will be the
1: temple forevermore. And we will dwell
0: in him and with him and worship him together forevermore. Do you look forward to that day? Yes. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we praise you for who you are. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to be new wine, to bring new worship to a people that are thirsty, to a thirsty, that are, to, to a thirsty people that are, are needy, Lord, we thank you that you have supplied and satisfied your people in and through Jesus. And Lord, I do pray that you would increase that satisfaction in us. And Lord, we ask to that end that, that you would make us what we are not, and that you would teach us what we know not, and that you would give us what we have not for our joy and your glory. And give us endurance as we wait as we see the destined day arise of your return, Jesus. We do pray that you would come quickly. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.